Folks, we have problems in our church. Now, don't get nervous. Everything's okay. I'm not saying we have any major problems in our church. We have had major problems in the past, but by God's grace, we don't have any major problems now. However, we do have problems. We have disagreements from time to time. We have disunity from time to time. We have mishaps, misunderstandings, and miscommunications. We have grumbling, gossip, and griping. We have prideful people, problem people, and pretender people. I've often told prospective church members, and we have some guests here today, please don't leave yet. Wait till, <laughs> wait till I get through the sermon. But I've often told prospective church members, if you're looking for a perfect church, don't come here. Because we have imperfect people at our church. Now again, I'm not saying that we have a bad church. God has been so good to our church. And I'm proud of the church God has shaped us into. However, we do have problems. But you can take heart, church, because we're not the only church that has problems. All churches have problems. In fact, we're going to see the problems that... We will see that problems are something that started with the very first church the church that we're encountering here in the book of Acts, the church in Jerusalem. And today's sermon is entitled, More People, More Problems. More People, More Problems. Now, if you're about my age, you're thinking of a, of a song that was around, but we won't get into that. But before we dive into this sermon, I want to go to the Lord in prayer because we are a problematic people. We need, an in, we need a perfect, non-problematic God to speak to us and teach us and guide us and direct us and convict us and encourage us and challenge us. So let's go to him in prayer and ask him to speak to us. Join me in prayer. God, we are people who are prone to problems because even though we have been set free from the curse of sin by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, even though we are led by your perfect Holy Spirit, we still willingly at times choose sin. We choose problems. We choose difficulty. We encounter it in others and in ourselves. And God, in this moment, we need to hear from you, the perfect God, the holy God, the sinless God, God, teach us how we can be more like you. Lord, show us, as we just sang, show us more of who you are. Show us your holiness so that we may aspire to be more like the people you've called and created us to be. God, surely there are people in this room who are not in Jesus. They do not have a relationship with Jesus. They have not been saved from their sin, and made new by the work of Christ. God, I pray that as we study your word, Lord, that you will speak to them through the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak to all of us, God, and draw us all, no matter where we are in our faith, in our lives, Lord, draw us all closer to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, now's the last warning. Turn to Acts chapter 6. Verse 1, keep your Bibles open, keep them turned on. We're going to be in this passage throughout the duration of the sermon. 
I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the pews or chairs around you. Uh, if you don't have one at home, please take that home. We'll restock it. Just take it. If you do have one at home, please put it back when you're done. But let's go to Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, so we're going to look at what's going on in this passage. We're going to look at what we can learn from our own lives. This is a real-life story in a real-life church with real-life people. We are real-life people in a real-life church led by the same Holy Spirit of God. So what can we learn today? We're going to look at three points. If you're taking notes, you can look in your bulletin. You can write those down or type them in your phone or write them on a piece of paper, whatever you want to do. First thing we can learn is the early church developed problems. The early church developed problems. We see this right away in the passage, don't we? Verse 1 says, As the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint. By the way, when it says disciples here, don't get confused. It's not talking about the twelve. Those are whom we call the apostles. They were also disciples, but the disciples included any followers of Jesus. So it's saying, as the followers of Jesus increased in number, as we read the first five chapters of Acts, we can see that they were indeed increasing in number daily, even though they were being persecuted, even though the religious leaders were trying to stop them. They kept growing in number, and it says, as they were growing in number, a complaint arose. Now, of course, we know that there had already been problems, a lot of complaints leveled against the apostles and the church, particularly from the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. However, this complaint is different because this was not from outside the church. This was from inside the church. And those are the worst problems when you have them inside the church or inside whichever group you're a part of. And so as the followers of Jesus increased in number, a complaint arose more people more problems by the way it's worth noting that most scholars believe there was a good amount of time that passed between acts chapter 5 and acts chapter 6 it's important to remember that as uh, we have the book of acts written by luke that's who the author is he's writing it as a historical record so it doesn't mean that it, it's just like each chapter is a day that's not it just means it's a period of time and they believe there's a lot of time that passed between Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 6. We don't know for sure, but some scholars say even as much as five years could have passed. But either way, we see that some time passed, and it gave more time for the number of people to increase. And as the number of people who were part of the church increased, we see problems arise. 
Well, what was the problem? Well, Luke says, the Hellenistic Jews complained about the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked. Well, let's talk a little bit about those words, Hellenistic. If you know history or ancient history, you know Hellenistic is basically Greek. It's the, it's the Greek way of doing things. And so it's basically these Greek types of Jews and these Hebrew types of Jews. But some of you might be a little confused. Because to be a Jew means to be Hebrew. So that doesn't make any sense. How can they be Greek Jews and Jew Jews? You know, what does that mean? Well, here's kind of what it, what it means is uh, they, they were all Israelites. They were all Jewish. They were all Hebrew. But there were some Jews who were more traditional. They probably lived in and near Jerusalem. They were what we might consider the old school Jewish type people. And then there were some, some of the newer more uh, progressive type Jewish people who had been exposed to Greek culture and Greek philosophy and the Greek way of doing things. Many of them probably lived outside of Jerusalem. But if you recall from Acts chapter 5, we see that many people came to Christ from outside Jerusalem. And it said they came in to the church and what they were doing. So these people are being mixed together and as a natural occurrence of mixing different people together, we see problems start to arise. It's also important to say these were all Jewish people. The church was exclusively, with a few exceptions, Jewish people at that time. It was not like they left Judaism and became Christians. No, they were still Jews. They were Jews who accepted Jesus as their Messiah. By the way, as all the Jews should have done. But these people were the ones who did. So these are Jewish people who follow Jesus, the Messiah. Some are from the old school Jewish background, even though they trust Christ as Messiah. And some are from a sort of Hellenistic, Greek-influenced background, still Jewish, still trusting Jesus as their Messiah. We also have to remember, this time in history, you've got to kind of put yourself in that historical context and remember that widows at that time were particularly vulnerable. They were very reliant on a father, a husband, or a son to take care of them. And these were widows who didn't have a father, a husband, or a son to take care of them. And so someone needed to take care of them. And we see from the very earliest days that the Church of Jesus Christ embrace the idea of meeting the physical needs of people. You can just trace it all through church history. The world would be a different place without the church of Jesus Christ meeting physical needs throughout the world, whether it's hospitals, schools, orphanages, whatever it might be. It has been shaped by the Christian church. This is not in my notes, but I got excited about saying this. But it happened not only with the church, it happened with Jesus. Jesus cared about the needs of people. And we see it here as well that the church wanted to take care of their own widows who were a part of their gathering. And they probably not only gave them food, but they probably gave them uh, money or physical things that they would need for their physical needs. And Luke refers to this in verse 1 as the daily distribution. This is what he's talking about. When you say, what's the daily distribution? It's not like they lined up and got their vitamins. That's not what it is. They're, they're getting what they need for their daily needs. And they're getting it from the church. Remember back in Acts chapter 2 and also in Acts chapter 4, we see that people shared things, right? They came together and they sacrificed 
so that no one went without needs that were met. And so here they are, they're gathering together, the widows have needs, and they're meeting those needs. This is a real life playing out of what we've already read about in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. But the Hellenistic Jews were saying, our widows are being overlooked. You're showing favoritism to the old school Jews, to the Hebraic Jews. Now I want to pause here for just a second and say, we don't really know that they were being overlooked. The Bible doesn't say that they were, in fact, overlooking the Hellenistic Jews. However, I can tell you as a leader in a church, it really doesn't matter always if a complaint is based on something that actually happened or not. It can still create a problem. I could share with you a list of complaints about me or our other pastors or my leadership or our church that are based on things that never actually happened, but they created sometimes major problems for me. However, I'm not going to share those because some of you might be offended if I shared your complaint publicly. (laughs) And I love you, so I won't do that. However, when a leader hears about a problem, they have to decide what must be done. And it was no exception with the apostles. When it says the twelve, it's talking about the apostles. So they had a problem, and something needed to be done. So what did they do? Well, I'm glad you asked. That takes us to point number two. The early church designated people. The early church designated people. Of course, to designate means you you choose someone and set them aside for a particular task. There was a problem, and they needed a solution. Verses 2 through 5 talk about this designation. Look at it again. Look at your Bibles. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples, that means all the followers of Jesus, and said, I lost my place there, oh, and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer, to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. By the way, I I think it's worth noting in, in my study I learned a lot of these names of these seven men are actually Greek names, meaning that these, we don't know exactly for sure, but many of these men probably had that Hellenistic background. And so they're actually selecting people, it seems, who can relate to these Hellenistic widows who felt like they might have been overlooked. Now, we know the last one was certainly Hellenistic because he says he was a convert from Antioch. So there's a good chance here that these men were actually selected because they could have a certain uh, relationship or understanding with these widows. That's, That's all just a little something for free. That wasn't part of the sermon, but it's just a little noteworthy thing. But after these men were chosen, verse 6 says, they stood before the apostles and the apostles laid hands over them and prayed for them. This is just one of a few verses that gives us a model for how we do modern day ordination services. If anybody's ever seen us do an ordination service for a pastor 
or a deacon, this is one of the passages where we draw that idea from. You might say, why do, you, why do people do that? This is it. This is one of the, it's not the only one. We see, we see setting aside of, of people for God's service all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, but this is a very, this, I mean, this basically looks like an ordination service, that these men are set aside for this specific role. By the way, it's often said that these men were the first deacons, but it's probably better to think of them as the forerunners of the deacons. You see, the official role of position, some people say the office of deacon, for the church of the New Testament type church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that really didn't become formalized till later in the New Testament. And we'll see that. It is in there. It is a, an official position in the church, but these are kind of, the, the idea of what a deacon should be kind of came from this passage. But these are more forerunners of deacons. But they were functioning in much the same way as deacons would later function and, and ideally function today. And that they serve the church and they assist the leadership of the church. That's what these seven were doing. That's what the role of deacon later came to be. It's also, also worth noting that this idea was not a new idea, certainly not now, but even then it wasn't a new idea. What the apostles proposed was very similar to the advice that Moses received from his father-in-law, and I just love his father-in-law's name, Jethro. Just a great name, Jethro. Some of y'all may recall, so Moses was the leader of God's people as they left uh, Egypt through the Exodus, and they, were, they didn't continue to increase in number. I mean, they did, but they were already big. There was a lot of people. That's why the Pharaoh was concerned about them. And he said, there's too many of these Israelites. And so eventually God led them out of Egypt, and all these problems started to develop, and everybody kept coming to Moses. Moses, what should we do about this? Hey, Moses, the toilet's running, you know. Hey, Moses, there's a, there's a car in the parking lot. It's been there three days. Somebody needs to call the police. And Moses like, all right, enough already. That's not exactly what happened. But that's the type of stuff that a leader might have to deal with. And Jethro gives Moses advice on how to handle this situation. But don't take my word for it. We read about it in Exodus chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. Jethro said, You should select from all the able the people, able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating dishonest prophet. Place them over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. It goes on to say they should judge the people at all times. Then they can bring you every major case, but judge every minor case themselves. In this way, you will lighten your load, and they will bear it with you. This goes back thousands of years before what we're reading about today. We see that Moses uh, got this advice to, to help his leadership, and now we see it in the same way happening with these seven coming along to help the apostles. Because the apostles were saying, basically, we don't have time for this. And Moses was saying, Moses' father-in-law recognized, Moses, you don't have time for this. And so they came together as the leaders of the church were asked to, uh, to be assisted by others within the church. It's also helpful to point out, if you look at the passage, the church itself was to select these men. And that's something we practice in our church. Our deacons are approved by the church. Uh, we don't just say, hey, these are your deacons, or these are, 
your committee leaders or these, I mean, the church, we are a congregationally governed church. The church is in charge now, and it seemed that was the case then. Of course, they were led by leaders that the church entrusted with leadership, as we do today. But the apostles said, you choose these men, and here are some qualifications to pick these men. By the way, if you pay attention, you need to remember these first two names, Stephen and Philip. We'll hear about them again. In fact, if you read ahead after we let out today, you'll hear about Stephen very quickly. Stephen comes right up in the next, the next little passage here, and we'll hear about Philip as well in the coming chapters. We, we don't hear much else about any of these other guys. I'm sure they were great guys. It's not that they were bad. That's not why we, we didn't hear about them. It's just that we hear more about Stephen and Philip later. As we think about the qualifications for these men, Look at what we see in verse 3. The apostle said these men were to have a good reputation, be full of the Holy Spirit, and to have wisdom. By the way, when we get into the official position of deacon later in the New Testament, there are specific qualifications that include these types of three things, but really add to it. You can write down 1 Timothy chapter 3, you want to look at that later you can see not only qualifications for deacons but also qualifications for pastors or overseers as well in first timothy chapter three but we also remember as we learned a moment ago that jethro proposed qualifications for moses for those people that were to help him right he said don't he didn't just say just pick some guys he said pick guys that meet these qualities and here in Acts chapter 6, the apostles say to the church, pick some men that meet these qualities. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy, raise up elders, raise up overseers, raise up deacons who meet these qualities. See, it's important for us to realize, church, First Baptist Bartow, it's important for us to realize that if someone is in a position of responsibility in the church, they should meet more qualifications than simply having a pulse. They should also meet more qualifications than simply attending church. We should have some standards, as is evidenced through the entire Bible, about what it means to be put in a position of authority or servitude in the church. And in this case, these servants were to have a good reputation, have the Holy Spirit, and have wisdom. You see, the apostles, when they developed these qualifications, they, they followed godly principles, and they trusted the Holy Spirit to guide these men, to guide the church, and to guide the process. And as I think about our own church, I think this is a really good idea for us, right? When there is a problem in the church, we should follow the model of figuring, this is the model that we should use when trying to figure out a solution. Number one, look to see what God's word already says. That's number one. What does the Bible already say about this situation? And then, as we see evidence in this passage, number two, we should practice godly wisdom. And number three, we should rely on the Holy Spirit to guide us. Those are the, that's the, the formula we should use in our church or in any church when we have to come up with a solution to a problem. What does God already say? What would godly wisdom tell us? And how is the Holy Spirit leading us by the way little uh secret for you that's not just the best way to solve problems in the church 
That's the best way to solve problems in your life. What does the Bible say? What would godly wisdom tell you to do? And how is the Holy Spirit leading you? Young people, teenagers, you have some problems from time to time, don't you? I know. I was there a while ago now. What do you do when you have a problem and you don't know what to do? Ask, what does the Bible already say? What would wisdom tell me? And how is the Holy Spirit leading me? Older people, you have problems from time to time, don't you? I know I do. Some of you are older than I. You say, what do I do when I have these problems? What has God already told me? What would godly wisdom have for me? And how is the Holy Spirit leading me? Practice that formula and see what God would do in your life. Well, how did this formula work out? How did this solution work out for the church and for the apostles and for the seven? Well, that takes us to point number three. The early church delegated properly. They delegated properly. We see that things turned out well in this situation. They did not all kill each other. They did not have a church split. We see things worked out. Now, before we get too far into this, can we just look at verse 5 again? It says, This proposal pleased the whole company. Now, we've had some pretty miraculous events in the book of Acts, but this is probably the most miraculous Everyone was happy with the decision that was made. That is an absolute miracle when everyone in a church can agree on something. And not only did everyone agree, but the proper delegation also allowed the apostles to do the primary task that God had called them to do. Look at verse 4 again. It says, We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You see, God did not charge the apostles primarily with distributing food and funds to widows. Now, that's, listen, that's not to say that's unimportant. That's not what this means at all. It is not to say that distributing food and funds is unimportant. It is important. However, the most important task that God had designed for the apostles was not that. Okay, It is important, but that was not God, what God called them to do first and foremost. In the same manner, Today, God has a specific design for the leaders of his church, the pastors. Listen, I know that I am not an apostle. Please do not think that I'm saying that our pastors are apostles. There are no more apostles. There are people that call themselves apostles, but they're not apostles. God's design for the church today is they would be led by pastors. That's his design. And as he had designed for the apostles, he also has designed for the pastors. The good thing is, God's actually given us more instruction about what pastors are to do than he did about what apostles are supposed to do. I think that's because Jesus was there in the person, in flesh, to tell the apostles what to do, and he's given us his word to tell us what the pastors are supposed to do. God designed that we would, that pastors similarly, as the apostles did, that we would teach, that we would lead, and that we would pray as the pastors in the church. Furthermore, God also designed the position of deacon. Again, these were the forerunners of deacons. These are, not, these are not deacons, and these are not pastors in this passage. These are the forerunners of deacons and apostles. 
But there's a very close correlation between deacons and pastors today. So the deacons are to serve the church and serve with the pastors so that the pastors can lead, teach, and pray. And then we see in verse 7, it says, The word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. You might say, what's the deal with that thing about priests? Well, there's a, you know, no one really knows for sure what that means. I mean, we know, we know what it means, but why it's included is the question. I think what's happening there may be two things. One is the priests were the ones who were really supposed to know the Word of God. Right? They were studying the Word of God. They really should have known it well. And it seems like perhaps they were making a connection. Oh, this Jesus really is the Messiah. But also, some of the priests were also those who were really strongly against the church in the earliest days. And so we see here, Luke takes note to say, he's kind of like, and this is Pastor Matt speaking here, not Luke, but it's almost as if Luke is saying, even priests were coming to the Lord, coming to become disciples. So this problem we see here, this, this problem that we had and the solution that resolved this problem in the early church resulted in a number of people continuing to increase among the disciples. They were reaching a great number, even the Jewish priests. As we look at this passage, among other things, here's the message for our church. I believe God wants us to hear this. When we follow God's design, when we use godly wisdom, when we are led by the Spirit of God, the church will flourish. That's what I believe, among other things, God wants us to know. We see they had a problem, they brought up a solution, they fixed the problem, and the church flourished. So also, we're going to have problems. We have problems. But when we follow godly wisdom, when we rely on the Spirit of God, when we do what God's told us to do, we will flourish when we when we let leaders lead and when we let those who are called to serve serve well and when we the people the church come together in harmony and humility the church will be healthy and that takes us to our bottom line church harmony and church humility lead to church health there's a lot of h's there I have to do that because I'm Baptist. There's church harmony and church humility will lead to church health. You see, the reality is, church, the Holy Spirit has a way for us. And godly wisdom will help us discover God's way for us. You know what's fascinating about this passage? It never says God told them to do this. Do you notice that? But there's something about being in tune with the Spirit of God and being led by godly wisdom that will help churches, groups of disciples of Jesus Christ, make decisions that are the right decision for the church and that are, in fact, from the Lord. Because you come together in harmony and humility and it leads to health because you're on the right page going the same direction together, locking arms together for the cause of Christ. And God blesses that and the church flourishes.
The way to church health is paved by humility and harmony. So here's just a few little tips. I, I, I got these on the screen for you. We should look out for the interest of each other. We should love each other. We should trust each other. We should serve each other. These are things we should do. You know, I think one of the things that might be the most challenging for all the churches where I ever served is that third one, trust each other. How many times, I mean, you don't, you don't have to say, this is a rhetorical question, meaning please don't, please don't answer out loud. <laughs> please. But how many times has a problem arisen, maybe you weren't a part of it, but you saw it, and people don't give each other the benefit of the doubt? Church, we are, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family. We should trust each other. We should trust that people love God and love us that are part of our church family. I don't mean trust everybody out there. Don't do that. But I mean your church family. We need to be able to trust each other. Now, sometimes people give us a reason not to trust them, and the Bible speaks to that as well. There's a proper way to deal with that. But generally speaking, we should look out for each other's interests, we should love each other, we should trust each other, and we should serve each other. And when we do these things, we will flourish as a church. Also, when we do these things, rather than more people, more problems, we'll have more people, more possibilities. More people, more possibilities. I don't know about you, but I look forward to a church with more possibilities rather than a church with more problems. What can you do this week? How can you live out the truths that we are learning in this passage? After all, you're not an apostle. You're not a Hebraic Jewish widow, probably. You're not a Hellenistic Jewish widow, probably. What can we do? Weekly challenge, one weekly challenge. Think of how you can contribute to the harmony of the church. Think about how you can contribute to the harmony of the church of the church. You see, the apostles, these seven men that were chosen, and the whole group of the followers of Jesus came together to bring harmony to the church and to continue its mission. They were all in it together. They all played a part. So what about you? This is a weekly challenge for you. I have one. I have the same weekly challenge for me. How can you contribute to the harmony of the church, to the flourishing, to the coming together and success of the church, to the unity, to the health of the church? What can you do? The reality is all of us can contribute to the problems of the church. And I'm just going to give you a little secret. It's not that hard to do that. Yeah, I mean, people are very good at creating problems in the church. Trust me. Myself included. I create some problems. Y'all, I've been your pastor for over six years. Y'all know that already. But it takes work to create harmony in the church. 
You ever notice that everything that is better is harder to get? You ever notice that? Good food is sometimes hard to make. Maybe not like, I mean, I like hot dogs. Those aren't that hard. But a really good hot dog might take a little extra work. But really good art is difficult to make. Really good relationships are hard to maintain. Really good buildings are difficult to build. Anything that is worth something takes extra effort. And listen, the harmony of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a good and beautiful thing. And it takes work to maintain and to develop in the first place. So how can you do your part to contribute to the harmony of the church? Think about that this week. As we come to a close, I'm very well aware that many of you are followers of Jesus. You are one of the disciples of Jesus. You've committed your life to him. The message for you is to, to think, what can I do to, to maintain and develop harmony in the church? What can I do to serve the church? What can I do to help equip the leaders of the church to do what they're supposed to do? Is there, what can I do to, when we see a problem to help bring resolution? What can I do to listen, to be in tune with the Holy Spirit of God so that he can lead us with godly wisdom? That, that's the message. That's the message for you. But there are others in here who do not have a relationship with God you are still in sin. You might say, what, is, what do you mean by that? The Bible says God created us to be in harmony with him. That was his original purpose for us, for humanity. But then the Bible says sin came into the world through the great deceiver, Satan himself. He brought deception and he led Adam and Eve, the very first humans, to sin and it brought a problem into that harmony. A big problem. Sin separates us from God. We can no longer have harmony with him. No longer have a relationship with him. We are no longer his children. We, are, we become his enemies. The Bible tells us that. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. The Bible says we become enemies of God. That's a problem. But just as in this story we read God has a solution for that problem. And God sent Jesus, his son, to live a holy, sinless life that we could not live. And then he paid the penalty for sin, which is death and separation. He paid that penalty by giving his life on the cross. And as he was being crucified, he cried out to God the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was separated from God in that death on the cross. As he took sin upon him, he took that judgment. And he absorbed the wrath that we deserve. But then, it's not the end of the story, Jesus rose from the dead. There was a solution to that problem as well. That the Son of God died on the cross, but God demonstrated his power over death, his power over sin, his power over Satan, as Jesus rose to new life. And he appeared to people. He really lived. You can go to the Acts chapter 1 and read about what Jesus did after he rose from the dead. And he went back into heaven to be with God the Father. And he is calling people to receive the solution to the problem of sin. 
which is to trust that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God. He really died so that you could be forgiven of your sins, and he will really make you a new creation. So the Bible teaches there's more to it than that, but there's no less than that. You have to believe Jesus died on the cross. You have to believe he's the Son of God. You have to believe he rose from the dead, and you have to believe that you need him to rescue you from your sins. And the Bible teaches when we were once in harmony and we became enemies of God, that through Christ we can come back into harmony with God. It's a relationship with him, and we can discover all who God created and called us to be. That's what we call the gospel. It means the good news. The word gospel means good news. That's the good news. Bad news, sin separates us from God, and we are sinners. The good news, Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead so that you could be brought back to God and have a relationship with him. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of response. It is a time for all of us to respond. This is not just a time where we sit with our hands folded and see if somebody will give their life to Jesus, although that would be incredible if somebody gave their life to Jesus. This is a time for all of us to ask the Holy Spirit, what are you telling me today? And how can I be obedient? How can I be faithful to what you are telling me? And God might be telling you, give your life to me. I can save you from your sins. I can make you new. If God's telling you that, be obedient. You can come forward as we sing and talk to one of our pastors. We can walk you through what it means for you to give your life to Jesus and be made new. God might be telling you, surrender your life to serve others more. Serve your church more or leave your church and serve someone else more. If God's calling you to do that, we want you out of here. Not because we don't love you, but because we believe in the mission of God. And if God's calling you to serve another church or serve on the mission field or become a pastor or something like that, we want you to be obedient to that. God might be calling you to be baptized, to let everyone know I'm a follower of Jesus and he's changed my life. God might be calling you to repent of sin. God might be calling you to make something right with a brother or sister in Christ or someone outside the church. I'm just making stuff up because I don't know what God's telling you. But listen. Listen to what God might be telling you and obey as we sing our song of response. Church, let us be in tune with the Holy Spirit of God. Let us go to God now in prayer and see how he'll work among us.